Bandit KJ Green welcoming you to another edition of Sports from the Hoodwood for February 11th, 2023. Coming up this week, we will review the conference championship games. What went right for the Chiefs and the Eagles, what went wrong for the 49ers and the Bengals, aside from the uh, former not having a quarterback. The NBA trading deadline has come and gone with a flourish. Kyrie to the Mavs, KD to the Suns, Westbrook to the Jazz. Look at some of the trades and impacts on their past and present teams. Shift gears back to the big game. History review and who I think will win the 57th Super Bowl. LeBron passes Kareem. The all-time great passes the all-time great. What it means in the grand scheme of things and why so much hatred for LeBron. We'll have all that. Goodwood High Five on the best all-star games from 5 to 1 and you'll be surprised who I think the best all-star game is. My fat dap and head slap, and a final word from Wood on the complicated legacy of the black quarterback and the Super Bowl. Got a lot on the plate to cover. Hey, I know it was off last week due to illness, but I'm back and better than ever. It's sports from the Hoodwood. Put your crash helmets, buck your seatbelts, and let's go. foremost location for the most honest, unfiltered commentary and insight on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's Hoodwood's hometown hero, K.J. Green. Green from Hoodwood, where your main man is back to at least decent, if not optimal health. Still got stuff he knows. But I was not wanting to go between sounding like Steve Urkel and Barry White. The voice was cracking so bad, I could not put on or produce a quality show with my voice all over the place and my head feeling like one minute like a helium balloon and the next minute 10 tons of bricks. So, took the week off, recharged the batteries, now I'm back and better than ever. Your well wishes were received and well appreciated. I'm your man KJ Green. Welcome you back to the Hoodwood. Snuffy still thinks I'm contagious. That's why he has a mask on. I can't understand how a stuffed animal thinks he's going to get contagious, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, let's take a look at the week that was. It shouldn't be the past Sunday because it was an absolute atrocious Pro Bowl game, if that's what they wanted to call it. I didn't even waste my time watching it. We'll talk about that in the Hoodwood Hot Five. But the week before that, we had the conference championship games. First in the NFC, the Eagles taking on the 49ers. And when Brock Purdy got knocked out with a bum elbow, tearing ligaments in his elbow, which he found out that the UCL, the ulnar collateral ligament, was badly torn. And he was going to need basically the football equivalent of Tommy John surgery. So that basically means that Brock Purdy is more or less done for if not for the for the rest of the 2023 season upcoming and his future may be very well in doubt that being said it seemed like the 49ers were going through quarterbacks faster than I go through water bottles these days but it seemed also that the 49ers really didn't have a plan what team and I discussed this with I argued this with a colleague, what team has a backup plan 
for when, okay, your starting quarterback goes down, you go to the backup. What happens when the backup goes down? You go to the emergency quarterback. What if the emergency quarterback isn't even capable of doing the basic functions because he's an emergency quarterback? He doesn't know the plays. Run the Wildcat. You have a handful of plays that a team can run with the Wildcat. And if a team isn't used to running the Wildcat, they are pretty much done for. And all the Eagles did the entire afternoon was pin their ears back and go hell-bent for leather at whoever was taking the snap for the 49ers. The Eagles winning 31-7 in the game could have been a whole, whole lot worse. You had the feeling that Nick Serrani was basically, you know, pumping the brakes midway through the second quarter because the game really wasn't in doubt after the, the Eagles busted out to a 24-point lead and they basically coasted. The 49ers, it's a sad coda for what was a brilliant season. The injuries that the 49ers quarterbacks have had, starting with Trey Lance, he gets hurt. Jimmy Garoppolo steps in, plays great. He gets hurt. Then Brock Purdy jumps in and capably leads the 49ers all the way to the NFC Championship game. Then he gets hurt. If Brock Purdy doesn't get hurt, I thought the game was basically up for grabs. But once he got hurt and you put in Josh Johnson, is he still in this league? They said Josh Johnson. That's exactly what I... I was with Princess Jazzy when I heard about this. And when uh, Josh Johnson, I'm thinking, wow. I'm waiting for them to, to, to pull out the phone and speed dial... Uh, uh, Joe Montana or, or, or Steve Young or Jeff Garcia or maybe even Colin Kaepernick. I don't know. It, it, it was, like I said, it was a sad, sad ending for the 49ers who had such a promising season in front of them, had won 11 in a row, basically won a tough duel with the Dallas Cowboys in the divisional round. After, after smacking around the Seattle Seahawks in the wild card round. They looked like they had the chops to stand tall with the Eagles, the number one seed, and knock them out of the playoffs. In Philly, tough, tall order to begin with, with no quarterback, no chance. That game was basically the warm-up act. It was the bad lounge singer for the main event which was the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Cincinnati Bengals in the AFC Championship game. And I think the game lived up to its billing. The Chiefs jumping out to a, to a, a sizable lead. The Bengals battling their way back, as is their wont. Joe Burrow, I love the kid. He's a, I mean, and, and I made the pick of Kansas City winning, which was not a popular choice in my neighborhood. I don't live too far from Cincinnati. People said, ah, how can you pick against the Bengals? They've been playing so well all season. Basically, I thought the Chiefs were due. I thought Patrick Mahomes, he had played a great game in the AFC Championship game the year before. Yes, they blew a 21-3 lead. Yes, they Mahomes made an absolutely foolish throw that got intercepted in overtime. But he's Patrick Mahomes. Those games are... The exception rather than the rule. And yes, 
Joe Burrow had won his first three matchups against Patrick Mahomes. That being said, you knew sooner or later it was going to flow the, the other way. The Bengals, their offensive line woes sooner or later were going to get them. Yeah, they played good against Buffalo, but I still think Buffalo could, could, could be beat. I thought Kansas City could be beat, but they needed to keep Joe Burrow upright, and they didn't do it. The Bengals let Joe Burrow get sacked five times. Now, four of them were in the first quarter, to be certain, and Joe, Bur Joe Burrow did lead the Bengals back to tie the game. But they took a couple of critical sacks, uh, an intentional grounding penalty late in the fourth quarter, and the Chiefs had an excellent punt return that put them within striking distance. That being said, the Bengals nearly escaped that. Patrick Mahomes rolling out, forced out of bounds. Joseph Asai a tad late with the push. And I, I you pretty much would for sure. If he was close to being out of bounds, Patrick Mahomes was going to fall. And if he fell, they were going to throw the penalty. For whatever reason, we're calling a dicey game to begin with. But in a game like that, you cannot let anything like that fall to the, to, to the purview of the refs. Because the refs are going to go to the home team every time. And in that, that instance, Patrick Mahomes, highly protected quarterback, they threw the unsportsmanlike conduct, added the 15 yards, and it was pretty much all she wrote because you knew Harrison Bucker was going to make it. He's money from inside 50. That's all she wrote. Chiefs win 23-20 and head to their third Super Bowl in five years. So, we have the Chiefs, we have the Eagles. The last two teams standing in Glendale, Arizona on Sunday, February 12th. Who wins? Who do I think what the keys of the game? Ah! That's a teaser. That'll come up later in the show. But first, I have some thoughts about my <laughs> favorite basketball player. of the LeBron scoring uh, championship or passing Kareem on the all-time scoring list, competing with that was the trading deadline. February 8th was the NBA trading deadline, and there were a number of trades that were consummated right at the trading deadline. The final 24 hours before the deadline saw 16 trades consummated, involving 49 players, better than 10% of the NBA. Now, the major trades, of course, Kyrie being sent to Dallas for uh, a number of uh, picks, including, I'm going to scroll my, <laughs> of course I'm not going to find it, that list of who it was, the, the, the Nets trading, uh, Kyrie Irving and Mark Eve Morris to Dallas for Dorian Finney-Smith, Spencer Didwitty, and a, and a trio of picks, including the first and second round picks in 2029. So I guess the players that are being traded, the draft picks that are being traded now are in sixth grade, seventh grade, maybe. <laughs> and a 2027 second round pick. The Nets get that in with in for uh, Irving and Morris. And Irving, for his part, is 
happy to be going to Dallas and he liked the culture. He didn't like the culture in Brooklyn and this, this, and that. Basically, Kyrie Irving whined his way out of Brooklyn. And he is throwing shade at the Nets, which doesn't surprise me any. But how long is he going to be able to get along with Luka Doncic? I mean, Luka is a good player. and He's a great player. And he seems to be one of those go-along-to-get-along type of guys. That being said, you have to wonder if this is just a temporary stopgap for the Mavericks. And I think the Mavericks are trying to win it all now and try to get the the, the, the numbers to make a run in the West. And the West is super deep. You're not going to be able to get along with a coconut smile, especially, nice transition here, with what Phoenix did. Yes, the Phoenix Suns were able to finally, they've been playing stalking horse for the longest time, but they finally were able to swing the deal that brought Kevin Durant from Brooklyn. And it was a monster trade. I didn't hear about it until the next, until this morning, until Thursday morning. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Phoenix Suns getting Kevin Durant and T.J. Warren in, in exchange for Cameron Johnson, uh, Michael Bridges, Jay Crowder, and four first-round picks and a 2028 pick swap. They, the, the, the Nets are basically loading up for the future. And these two trades basically are saying, hey, Phil, hey, Ben Simmons, get off your ass and start playing. No, actually, it means that, and I'm going to be surprised Ben Simmons gets quietly dealt off this summer because he's not going to play. He can't carry that team. That team is going to be rebuilding for the future again. But what it means for the Suns, it's all or nothing now. Chris Paul was 37. He's in the twilight of his career. Kevin Durant ain't a spring chicken. He's 34. But you also got DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker. The Suns are loaded for Title One right now. The Denver Nuggets, who are right now top dog in the West, are looking on. Mm, okay, it's on now. And the, and the Nuggets, they didn't really stand pat. They made a couple small deals, but they didn't do anything monster like the Suns did. And this. Is it even the biggest deal? Well, I say that's the biggest deal that happened. But Russell Westbrook traded to the Jazz in a three-team swap. Which I find ironic because when Russell Westbrook was playing with the Oklahoma City Thunder in a playoff series, he got into it with some Jazz fans. Now he's going to Salt Lake City. You know he's thinking, get me out of here. And you don't know how he's going to mesh with his teammates in, in Utah or the fans. And it's, I think it's going to be a really, really ugly time. There, there were other fairly big uh, uh, trades. The Blazers sending Josh Hart to the Knicks uh, for first-round picks. And it's the Knicks, I don't know how to, how to gauge them right now. I mean, Tom Thibodeau has made that team better, but... In, in a rugged East with Milwaukee and Boston, they're still a second-tier squad. And it, I, I looked at the one, the, the, the move going back to Russell Westbrook, that three-team deal with the Lakers getting Malik Beasley and uh, D'Angelo Russell and Jared Vanderbilt from 
the uh, Timberwolves, while the Timberwolves got Mike Conley, which I think is a really good pairing with him and his former teammate, Rudy Gobert. The Jazz getting Russell Westbrook, uh, Juan Scano-Anderson, Damian Jones in a 2027 first-round pick. The, the Lakers are trying desperately to get their hands on something that's going to at least try to make them viable for a playoff run. Right now, the Timberwolves are in the playoff spot. The Jazz, I believe, are right outside a playoff spot. The Lakers are in 13th place in the West, still looking up at a couple of teams they got to get by just getting the playing game. It's a mess. It really is. The trading deadline and the fallout right before the All-Star game is still going to be something that needs to be threshed out. Who's the big winners and who's the big losers? That's another thing that's going to be a we'll wait and see. But for now, it looks like the Suns and the Mavericks have tried to add pieces to try to vault their way into the top spot where the Nuggets currently uh, currently reside. Nuggets have never been to the finals. But their, their chances of trying to get the finals have gotten exponentially tougher having to deal with these two teams who have made blockbuster deals. I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to speak on LeBron. LeBron James finally passing the all-time great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with a late jumper in the third quarter. He passes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to become the all-time leading scorer in NBA history at the time of this taping. It'll be 38,390 points. Passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's 38,387 points set between 1969 and 1989. Kareem, of course, playing with the Bucks and then the balance of his career with the Lakers. LeBron James having been on the Lakers for now his fifth season. Now, there were a lot of... I don't want to call it ambiguity. I mean, it was a kind of inevitability more to it. Everyone knew that, barring a catastrophic injury, that LeBron James was going to pass the uh, longtime Laker captain and become the NBA's all-time leading scorer. That wasn't so much a, if he was going to do it, it was basically when he was going to do it. I remember when LeBron James was a cheeky teenager playing in Cleveland. In his first shot, he made a baseline jumper in Sacramento. No one thought that he would have the kind of longevity and consistency that has brought him to the NBA scoring peak and then some. Project numbers have LeBron James passing 40,000 points, passing 41,000, and somewhere in the end, again, barring any kind of catastrophic injury, giving LeBron James's relatively good health and excellent uh, physical shape, that he should be able to hit the finish line of his career sometime, say, in 2025, with over 44,000 points. He should put that scoring record far beyond the reaches of a lot of his contemporaries. Kevin Durant, being one of those who I think is the next highest active player, he doesn't crack 30,000 points. And LeBron James is closing in on... 40. You put those numbers together, and LeBron James has the kind of numbers and longevity that he will put that scoring record so far out that 
it will take someone maybe who is, you know, just picking up a basketball today, the kind of longevity and scoring punch over a long period of time to be able to catch that. When Kareem set the record when he passed Wilt Chamberlain in April of 1984, he set the record passing over 31,000 points. And of course, Wilt Chamberlain was larger than life and many people thought that his record wasn't going to be broke. When Kareem passed his record, he played five more years. Now, the problem with that, the last maybe two or three years of Kareem's career wasn't very, it was decent. But by his standards, what he had started out the first few few seasons, first 15 years of his career, dominant. The last five, not so much. He scored about, about 7,000 points. That was about 1,400 points per season for the last five years of his career. If LeBron does that, just say 7,000 points, pushing it past, he will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 45,000 points. The numbers itself are mind-blowing. Now, keep in mind also, Kareem played most of his career without a three-pointer. He only made one three-pointer in his entire career. LeBron James has made over 2,300 of them. The, the numbers in itself are mind-boggling. And the hate that LeBron James has gotten for passing the scoring record, which everybody knew he was going to do, it boggles the mind because all LeBron James has done is play and play and play. He has not dragged down any of his teams. If anything, he has kept the Lakers relevant. Even though they're 13th in the West, he has kept them mildly relevant for the whole season, not just because of scoring chase. He has played, if he was on any other team playing this way, there'd be MVP talk. But right now, LeBron James is just putting in the numbers, putting up good numbers, and he should, and people talk about he might play with his son, which would be an interesting proposition, but he has put up decently consistent numbers where he will be a viable scoring option for at least another two or three years. If he packs on, say, seven to 10,000 more points, it's going to be a long time. I mean, that, that record stood for almost 40 years. I was in the sixth grade when Kareem passed Wilt Chamberlain. When Kareem finished his career, I was in the 11th grade. And most people thought 38,000 points is an unreachable star. Where the way LeBron is going, that will be an unreachable star. And I think it's funny that when Kareem uh, passed Wilt Chamberlain's record, LeBron wasn't even born. So you're thinking there may be some player now who is not even thought of, not even known, not even born. Four years down the line, when I'm probably in the rocking chair, going, I used to have a sports talk show. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, Mr. KJ, have another yogurt, be quiet. That there'll be some kid who is playing in the twilight of his career, passing LeBron. Kareem will be long gone, I might be long gone, but somebody may have the temerity to pass his record. Can it happen? Who knows? That's why they play the games. Stick time out. Come back and we will look at the big game. 
I don't want to run afoul of the NFL by calling the name what it is, but the 57th edition of the biggest game in NFL every year. Wayne Thomas once asked, if it's such a big game, why do you play it next year? Something to think about. But we will take a pre we'll take a history lesson of the Super Bowl as well as a preview of the game. Sports from Hollywood comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. Once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, K.J. Green. You are back in the hoodwood. My name is K.J. Green, and okay, chillins, gather around for a story. It may be a little bit complicated, may need some popcorn, but it's still a good story nonetheless. We'll go back, all the way back to 1959, when the NFL consisted of 12 teams in 11 cities and was just starting to merge as a force on the sporting landscape. The Colts, who were then happily playing in Baltimore, would defeat the New York Giants for the second time in as many seasons to win the NFL title. Now, the NFL landscape was primarily a northern and eastern entity, with the most southern team in 1959 being Washington. The Rams and the Niners were the only two teams west of the Mississippi. The Cardinals franchise still played in Chicago. And they were the poor Southside cousins in to the more affluent team in Wrigley Field, where the Bears played. Let me try that again. Cut. The Cardinals franchise played in Chicago and were the poor Southside cousins in Comiskey Park to the more affluent and popular Bears who played on the north side in Chicago and Wrigley Field. The Cardinals were owned by... Violet Bidwell Wolfner, who was the wid widow of Charles Bidwell, who was one of the more senior owners in the NFL. She was besieged by suitors for her club, who was losing money. The Bidwells decided to spurn all suitors and not sell. Instead, they moved to St. Louis, where they would play for 27 years and be the football counterpart to the more famous and more successful baseball team of the same name. Now, the Bidwell family still own the Cardinals to this day and have since moved on to Arizona, where, ironically, the 57th Super Bowl is being played. And they've actually been in Arizona now longer than they were ever in St. Louis or Chicago. Now, one of those spurned suitors for the Cardinals franchise was a gentleman by the name of Lamar Hunt, who's an oil tycoon 
uh, fortune. He's heir to a, I should say, try it again. Now, one of those spurned suitors was Lamar Hunt, heir to an oil tycoon fortune. Hunt was frustrated in his bid to buy the Cardinals and annoyed that the NFL showed no signs of expanding beyond its 12 teams, soon to be 12 city base. Now, the NFL Hunt contacted another Texas oil tycoon by the name of Bud Adams, as well as another, as well as, as well. Try it again. Cut. Let's just stop it. Stop it! Stop it! Roll it back. Computer, what's the uh, notification? One new notification. From Amazon Shopping. Your return for screen protector was received, and a refund has been issued for $8.50. Super Bowl history, take two. Sound speed. You are back in the hoodwood. My name is KJ Green, and now, chillins, let's gather round for a story from the old bandit. We'll go all the way back to 1959 when the NFL consisted of 12 teams in 11 cities and was just starting to emerge as a force on the sporting landscape. Now, the Colts, who were happily playing in Baltimore, would defeat the New York Giants for the second time in as many seasons to win the NFL title. Now, the NFL landscape was primarily a northern and an eastern entity, with the most southern team in 1955 being in Washington, the Rams and Niners being the only teams west of Mississippi. Now, the Cardinals franchise played in Chicago with the poor Southside Cousins in Comiskey Park to the more affluent and popular Chicago Bears who played on the north side in Wrigley Field. Now, the Cards were owned by Violet Bidwell Wolfner, who was a widow of Charles Bidwell, one of the more senior owners in the NFL. She was besieged by suitors for a ball club who was losing money at a rapid pace. Now, the Bidwell family decided to spurn all the suitors and not sell, instead moving to St. Louis, where for 27 years they would be the football counterpart to the more famous and successful baseball team of the same name. The Bidwell family still own the cards to this day and have since moved on to Arizona, where they now have been in Arizona longer than they ever were in St. Louis. Now, one of those spurned suitors was a gentleman by the name of Lamar Hunt, who was heir to an oil tycoon fortune. Hunt was frustrated in his bid to buy the Cardinals and annoyed that the NFL showed no signs of expanding beyond its 12 team and now soon to be 12 city base. Hunt contacted another Texas oil tycoon, Bud Adams, as well as six other high dollar men, would be owners including Baron Hilton, yeah, the hotel owner and Paris' grandfather, Max Winter in Minneapolis. Bob Hausman in Denver, Billy Sullivan in Boston, and Detroit insurance magnate Ralph Wilson, who was considering Miami, but then chose to go, go to Buffalo because it had a stadium. Also included was sportscaster Harry Wismer, who had enough money to join his foolish club, which would become the American Football League. Now, at first, the NFL was helpful. Then Commissioner Burt Bell gave Hunt a copy of the NFL's Constitution and bylaws to give a framework of a setup. 
Bell seemed to be at the least, very least, indifferent to the idea of a new league, but wasn't openly hostile at first. Unfortunately, Bell passed away at a game in 1959, and the NFL took its time about naming a new commissioner. The 12 owners of the NFL, in contrast, were openly hostile to the thought of a competing league and went around and decided to go on to the offensive, uh, creating expansion teams in Dallas and Minneapolis. The former was where Hunt was creating a team himself, and the latter awarded the owners who were going to create an AFL team in the Twin Cities. They also approved the cards moved to St. Louis to keep them out of that city as well. Now these preemptive strikes shut the AFL out of two potential markets and made a third a tough go for the founder of the new league. The AFL had to scramble to find a new owner and acceding to the demands of Baron Hilton who wanted another California ma uh, market to ease travel costs settled on Oakland, whose initial owner, the enigmatic Chet Soda, had to be talked out of naming the team the Seniors. The Oakland Seniors? The Las Vegas Seniors? Oh, never mind. He settled on the Raiders instead. Now that team would struggle for its first couple of years, and then the soon-to-be iconoclastic Al Davis would soon join the team as a coach from the Chargers to the Raiders in 1963, turning the doormat into a powerhouse. <coughs> There's an edit for you. In any case, the AFL launched with eight teams, and though at times seemed a bit unsteady, developed as a pro league with teams in new cities with Boston, Buffalo, Denver, and Houston, and teams in the established cities of New York, Los Angeles, and Dallas, which was a newly created NFL city, and Oakland just across the bay from the 49ers, who had been in the NFL for about a decade. But though wildly, with Chargers having to move downstate to San Diego after one season, and the Texans having to relocate to Kansas City and rebrand as the Chiefs in 1963. Now, the league began to establish itself as a solid pro league despite its shaky status of the Raiders, the ineptness of Titans, New York Titans owner Harry Wismer, who would later that team would later become the Jets, and the hideousness of the Brown, of Broncos brown and yellow socks vertically striped. Oh, jeez. But, Wismer was eventually bought out by David Sonny Werblin, and the team was renamed the Jets. Werblin, like Wismer, had a broadcasting background, but unlike Wismer, he had cash and Madison Avenue connections. Now, this was key as it helped AFL negotiate and gain a new TV contract with NBC in 1965. Added nice cash infusion to the teams. Now, on solid financial footing, the AFL planned expansion. First, trying to grant a franchise to Atlanta. But that city rejected the AFL's offer when the NFL considered a franchise for that city. Opening Instead, they decided to open up shop in Miami in 1966, and they stepped up the pursuit, their pursuit of the best college players. Now, the problem started when New York Giants kicker Pete Gugelak played out his option with the New York Giants and then signed with the Buffalo Bills in the AFL, becoming the first player to jump leagues, breaking the so-called gentleman's agreement between the two pro leagues. This enraged the NFL, who then went about trying to destroy the AFL with a big money bidding war. But the AFL hung in tough 
and the number of players that were drafted by both leagues increased dramatically. And when Raiders GM Al Davis became commissioner of the AFL in 1966, he openly tried to recruit established, AFL, uh, established NFL stars to jump to the AFL. Now this started a series of negotiations and within the bidding war and merged the two leagues. Not only did this bring about a merger, both leagues creating teams end up creating teams that would bring pro football teams to cities that were once considered far-flung outposts, like New Orleans, Cincinnati. And in 1966, a merger between the AFL and the NFL was announced for 1970, and a creation of the World Championship game between the two leagues in, 19, in January 1967. Pete Rozelle granted a franchise in New Orleans that year as a favor to a powerful New York, oh, big pardon, as he, <clears throat> try that again, Pete Rozelle granted a franchise to New Orleans that year as a favor to a powerful Louisiana senator to help steer the merger through possible antitrust traps that may have stalled or derailed the merger. It's initially called the AFL-NFL Championship Game, the first matchup between the Packers and the Chiefs. It was a 35-10 route in favor of the Packers, and to some confirmation that the AFL was still way out of their league. Although what many people overlooked, that game was only 14-10 at the half, and the Packers had a key interception in the third quarter that uh, turned the score to make it 21-10 that turned the tide of the game. Now the Packers defeated the Raiders in the second title game, leading all the way to a 33-14 route. Now the game was nicknamed the Super Bowl as an informal title. Then NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle hated the name. He actually wanted to call the game the Pro Bowl. But, of course, that was already in use as the NFL All-Star Game. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Let's talk about the All-Star Games a little bit. We'll do that. But, with no or workable or alternatives, eventually the name became official with the third game. Now, that game was a historic Jets upset of the seemingly invincible 13-1, 18-point favorite uh, Baltimore Colts. That win gave the AFL more credibility, and with the Chiefs thumping the Vikings in the fourth Super Bowl, the last game for an AFL team as its own league, the, scene, the game was seen more and more as the crown jewel of the pro game. NFL went on as a 2016 two-conference entity with the Super Bowl as its championship game and has now grown to the 32-team behemoth that we know today. Now, the game has grown way big in stature to becoming the most watched sporting event of every calendar year. Tickets for the first Super Bowl cost $6, $10, and $12. According to the New York Times adjusted for inflation, that $12 ticket is $94 today. During Super Bowl 57 week, $94 won't get you even in the parking lot. <laughs> in fact, I just looked it up. $267 for tickets just to get in the parking lot of State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. As for tickets, the cheapest tickets that I looked up just uh, before I started taping this segment were a pair going for $4,750. And that's in the, one of the top rows of State Farm Stadium. The most expensive club seats which weren't even an option for the first uh, Super Bowl in Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, cost $23,748 on SeatGeek. $24,000. I spent $700 for my pair of Bearcat football season tickets, and people are going to pay $25,000 for 
for a pair of seats for one game. That's crazy. Now, the top four most watched broadcasts, television broadcasts in U.S. history are Super Bowls. Broadcast rights and commercial spots being highly coveted and as it rotates among the networks, as we're going for $55,000 in 1967, $292,000 in today's money, on the two networks, the, the networks for the NFL and the AFL, both show the first game. This year, a spot will run you, a 30-second spot, $7 million for 30 seconds. Now, how much food is consumed? Over 1.1 billion chicken wings will be consumed. Pizza Hut, report, Pizza Hut reports that over 2 million pizzas will be ordered on Super Bowl Sunday. In terms of food consumption, only Thanksgiving ranks higher in the number of uh, the amount of food that is consumed. Fast forward back to present day with the Super Bowl, like I said, is the crown jewel of football and the dream of every football player. The winning team this year will pocket $150,000 in bonus money. But it's that foot high, seven pound Tiffany Silver trophy that is the desire. I always thought the best quote was from Johnny Davis, a reserve running back for the San Francisco 49ers when they won their first Super Bowl in 1982. The money is nice, but I'll spend that, but it's the ring that lasts forever, quote unquote. So now you have a bit of insight on how we've come to know as the de facto sporting holiday as Super Bowl Sunday. Now let's look at the game. And then there were two. Chiefs and the Eagles are left standing after a three-week Super Bowl tournament. These are the last two teams on the field. They will meet in Arizona. Call it duel in the desert. Call it what you want. Two best teams in the NFL facing off for the all the marbles, for the trophy, for the fame, for the glory, for the 57 times. Super Bowl 57 set to kick off this Sunday in State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. It's going to be a 6.30 kickoff on Fox. Kevin Burkhart on the play-by-play. -play. Greg Olson on color commentary with Aaron Andrews and Chris Myers on the sidelines as reporters and NFL rules analysts Mike Pereira and Dean Blandino standing by. Eagles are one-and-a-half-point favorites. That odd is provided by... ESPN for comparison and purpose, comparison and entertainment purposes only. I've only said this 21 weeks. You should know that I don't pay bookies. Let's look at some fast facts on the game, shall we? This will be the first time since 2017 that both number one seeds made it to the Super Bowl. Ironically, the last time that happened, Eagles were the NFC representative playing the Patriots. First time coaches are 27 and 29 in the Super Bowl since the 1970 merger. Teams wearing white have won 35 of the 57 Super Bowls and 14 of the last 16. Eagles, the, even though they have, they are designated the home team, they have their choice of jerseys. They choose to wear their green jerseys as the home team. The Chiefs are 2-2 two two in the Super Bowl with wins in Super Bowls 4 and 54, losses in 1 and 55. The Eagles are 1-2, I beg your pardon, in the Super Bowl, winning Super Bowl 50, 53 and losing Super Bowls 15 and 39, respectively. The last time these two teams met on the field, 
Chiefs won 42 to 30 in 2021 and lead the all-time series 5-4. Let's take a look at the Kansas City Chiefs, who are the AFC champions, at with a 14 and 3 regular season record as AFC West champions. They are coached by Andy Reid, who is 128 and 52 in 10 seasons in Kansas City, 258 and 154 and one tie in 24 seasons overall with Kansas City and Philadelphia. Reed is the fifth coach to have faced his former team in the Super Bowl. Weeb Eubank and John Gruden were winners against their former team, facing the Colts and Raiders respectively, while Dan Reeves and Pete Carroll lost against the uh, Denver Broncos and New England Patriots. The Chiefs earned their uh, first round bye as the AFC number one seed. Then they defeated AFC champion Jacksonville Jaguars 27-17 in the AFC divisional round and then defeated the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20 in the AFC championship. The Bengals being the AFC North champions. Now let's take a look at the Philadelphia Eagles, who are the NFC champions. They also went 14-3 and and were the NFC East champions. They're coached by Nick Cerrani, who is 25-12 overall in two seasons in Philadelphia, 23-11 in the regular season, 2-1 in the playoffs. Uh, the Eagles earned a first-round bye as the NFC's top seed, then defeated the NFC number three wildcard New York Giants 38-7 in the divisional round, and then defeated the NFC West champion San Francisco 49ers 31-7 in the NFC Championship. Now, when the Chiefs have the ball, Patrick Mahomes is the key to this offense. His ankle... A high ankle sprain is still a big question. If he's at full power and speed, he will present real problems to an Eagles defense who excel at containment and possess a complex attack. The Chiefs don't really run the ball a whole bunch. Isaiah Pacheco uh, barely had over 890 yards, but they rely a lot on Mahomes scrambling to keep defenses honest. Now, when the Eagles have the ball, Jalen Hurts can scramble, and that is a well-documented fact. But the Eagles can pound the ball with just as well with the highly underrated Miles Sanders being able to tote rock. They also have lethal receivers in A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. Now, Chris Jones on the uh, Chiefs defensive side is a problem. 15 and a half sacks. He has the speed and power to be able to contain Jalen Hurts and be a real force in the in containment of the Eagles' dynamic running game. Now, when it comes to coaching, Andy Reid has been in the coaching game a long time, 24 seasons to be exact. And he's been a head coach, first with the Eagles and then the last 10 with the Chiefs. And he's made it both teams' respective powerhouses in each conference. Now, getting a Super Bowl ring three years ago put him in that champion coach's status after trying to do so with Eagles for 14 seasons. If he gets one here especially against a team that he coached for such a long time and dumped him a decade ago, it would elevate him into that rarefied status. Now, Nick Serrani is quite the unknown quantity. This is only his second year as a head coach, but he burns an intense desire to beat the coach that he feels shuffled him out a few years back when he was coaching in Kansas City. Now, the Eagles win if... The Eagles win if... The, if they keep Mahomes and company under control, tall order to be sure. Now, the Chiefs' offense might not be as dynamic as they have been in years past, especially during the, their, their Super Bowl winning run, but they still can put up points 
at a frightening clip that said Eagles defense has been downright stingy in their two playoff games, and they have made offenses disappear. But this is a boss-level offense that Mahomes pilots. If they can contain that, they can grind out an ugly but solid win. Now, the Chiefs win if Chiefs win if their offense gets clicking right off the bat, forces the Eagles to match them score for score. Defenses know that Travis Kelsey is getting the ball. He makes catches, makes plays, and Mahomes always seems to find him in a pinch. Keeping Mahomes upright and mobile is paramount for the Chiefs. The Chiefs don't worry about being behind in a game, but that wouldn't be a smart bet for them to test that against a rugged defense as tough as the Eagles possess. They have shown that when getting a lead, they dare you to stop their, their passing game. The Chiefs want to keep the Eagles offense from turning this into a low-scoring slugfest with limited long possessions. The Hoodwood pick? <laughs> this is a story of contrast and similarities. Both teams have dynamic quarterbacks. I won't even get into the fact that there are black quarterbacks on possess, uh, piling both teams. I just did. But the Eagles defense has shown a predilection to take over games. And while Chiefs offense can be frighteningly efficient and high scoring, and Mahomes has been here before, that could be the difference. If his ankle's good enough. Big if. That said, the Eagles have turned up the heat on defense. And they have made offenses in the Giants and Niners look pedestrian. Something tells me that the Eagles running game will be the difference. And that though the Chiefs want to make this a shootout on their terms, I think that the Eagles limit their mistakes and force the Chiefs to play from behind. They will also give the older Kelsey brother, Jason, Bearcat, a little bit more bragging rights at future family functions. Good with Pitt, Eagles 34, Chiefs 24, and there you have it. Let's take our final timeout and come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five. Fat dap, head slap, and the final word from the Wood. Put your Hoodwood heads down the home stretch after this. Your new And the final word from the wood. Our Hoodwood Hot Five, usually I rank teams or have five topics, but this one we're going to do a little different. The Hoodwood Hot Five is, the, I think, the five best all-star games from number five being the worst 
to the number one. And you'll be surprised who I think the number one all-star game is. Our number five all-star game is the NFL, the Pro Bowl, flag football. Really? Never has an all-star game dropped into such irrelevancy than the NFL has done with this joke of a Pro Bowl, which is flag football, skills competition, tiddlywinks, three-on-three basketball, you know... I don't know what it was. I didn't bother watching it. It was a snooze fest by all accounts. And when you took the game out of Hawaii, you took a lot of incentive for a lot of players to want to go. A lot of players ask out of the Pro Bowl nowadays, and they don't want to go. You took out the incentive of, of beautiful Hawaii. You took out a lot of uh, reason for a lot of players wanting to go. And the players that are there look disinterested. Josh Jacobs was visibly agitated and irritated and he basically said we really doing this shit sad state of affairs our number four ranking in all stars are the NHL which just played just a few days ago this one I'm still trying to figure out you know you have your divisions team all-star teams per division you're playing around robin you're playing a shootout you're playing back and forth Three on three, who cares? It just seems like the NHL All-Star game has delved into gimmickry and the players look disinterested. The fans are kind of like, eh, whatever. I still say combine the All-Star game, the Winter Classic, play it outside, play a NHL All-Star team versus a international All-Star team or something like that. You got to make something better for this All-Star team, the All-Star game because... Frankly, it's boring. Nobody wants to watch it. Our number three ranking in the All-Star Games is the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. It lost its luster some with inter, uh, interleague play when that became common in the mid-90s. I am glad that the uh, All-Star Game ended the stupidity of whatever league wins the All-Star Game gets home field advantage. That wasn't the dumbest thing that you could ever have. Now, on the, uh, on the flip side, I do like the skills competition. The Home Run Derby has become must-see TV. Now, if they can make the All-Star Game must-see TV, I had a proposal, put a $5 million pot in and say winner takes all. The loser just gets travel expenses. You see, see some takeout slides and some hard pitching uh, 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 from the uh, hard starting pitching and hard living, relief pitching from both sides if they were all playing for a winner take all pot. Now, the number two ranked All-Star Game is the NBA All-Star Game, which should be coming up here in a few days. Now, probably the best competition, but the Elam ending has made it gimmicky. I, I know you're trying to keep interest in the game, and you're trying to prevent a 200-point game, which I was hoping a couple years ago that, that one of the teams was going to crack 200. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, nobody plays defense. And it's, you try to make the All-Star game more interesting for fans, you know, having the, the, the two best players pick up sides and Team Giannis and Team LeBron. But it's not really that fun to watch. I mean, you probably, you probably will watch it for the last maybe four or five minutes. Will the Elam ending continue to be something that they bring in? I don't know. But the NBA All-Star game I have it ranked second in the Hoodwood Hot Five. The number one 
All-Star Game, MLS. The best you have, the MLS with an All-Star Game taking on a real international team. The competition in that game is fierce. I mean, you don't have a lot of hard slide tackles or, you know, uh, or any kind of the drama in regular MLS games. But you do have good, fierce competition. The MLS is trying to prove that it is on par with La Liga, with the Mexican League, with the Premier League. And they try to put their best players out there to try to prove that point. Now, MLS has been around over 25 years. They're still kind of looked down at as a pro soccer league. But their all-star game is gaining popularity. And it's pretty fun to watch. I like watching MLS myself, but the way they have this competition drawn out, they're basically taking on an international team. It's fun to watch. That's my high five. What's yours? Now turning to our fat dap and head slap of the week, our fat dap of the week goes to Donna Kelsey. You say, who is Donna Kelsey? Is she some sort of, you know, commissioner, player? No. She's a mom. Mother of Jason and Travis Kelsey. And Kelsey boys are well-respected uh, players of in their position. Jason being a center for the Philadelphia Eagles. And Travis being a all-pro tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. And you have their mom, who has basically fielded all sorts of questions and all sorts of um, media requests and she dutifully wears her half Eagles, half uh, Chiefs jersey and has steadfastly refused to pick a side and is happy that both of her boys are playing in the highest game of, of the season. Of course, it's the first time that brothers have faced off in the Super Bowl. 57 years and brothers have never played each other in the Super Bowl? That is something. Head, uh, fat dap to Donna Kelsey for being probably one of the uh, best sporting mothers in the country. Our head slap of the week isn't so much a head slap, but a whoa. Our head slap of the week goes to the UConn women's basketball team. They lost two straight games. Wait, wait, what? UConn. Losing two games in a season is big news. Losing back-to-back games? They lost to Marquette 59-52 in Milwaukee. The first time that Marquette has ever beaten UConn. Ever. Since they joined the Big East. Uh, this is coming off of the heels of an 81-77 loss to the number one team in South Carolina. No shame in that. Don Staley has a powerhouse crew down there in Columbia. And there's been some barbs between Don Staley and Gino the Mafia Don over what Ariyama calls rough play. Hmm. When UConn plays rough, they tell everybody to toughen up. When somebody's playing rough on them, Gino whines. Hmm. Now, this was the first time that UConn lost back-to-back -back games in 30 years. Not three, not 13, three, zero, 30. The last time that UConn lost back-to-back -back games was in 1993 when they lost the conference tournament and then lost in the first round of the 1993 tournament. 
They haven't done that again in 30 years. Now, to be fair, injuries to Paige Beckers, Carolina Ducharme, and uh, Aziz Fudd have hurt. But you're not used to seeing UConn with a 21-4 and record. UConn with four losses? Oh, my goodness. Now, granted, all four losses have been at home. They lost in uh, uh, the Joyce Center to Notre Dame. And they lost down in, uh, in, in um, I, almost said, I almost said Annapolis, College Park, to Maryland, which no shame in losing to those powerful squads. And, and you know UConn's not getting beat in the Fortress that's Gamble Pavilion. But still, you have to be shocked to see the Mafia Don, Gino Arayama, taking losses. More than more than one loss of the season and back to back like this? Holy smokes. And now without much further ado, let's go to the final word from the wood. Thirty-five years ago, Doug Williams made history as the first black quarterback to play in the Super Bowl. He was also the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Now, when I watched this game with my uncle, my, the person that I am named after, my mother's only brother, and we were kind of chatting about who we thought was going to win the game. I personally thought Denver had a better shot to win it because John Elway was returning to the Super Bowl after losing the Super Bowl the year before to the Giants. And my uncle looked me dead in the face, and he shook his head and says, we're rooting for Washington today. And I looked at him and I said, why are we rooting for the, why are we rooting for, as they're, they're known then, the Redskins, why are we rooting for them? You know, I was kind of sore at them for beating my Vikings in the NFC Championship a couple weeks before. My uncle just looked at me and said, we're ne- we might not never get a chance like this again. We're rooting for us. And I thought about it for a second and I remember, yeah, Doug Williams, who had started his career at, in Tampa Bay after being a top draft choice out of Grambling, having fell out with then Bucks owner Hugh Culverhouse, bouncing around the USFL and then landing back in Washington uh, a few years after being, that, like I said, the Bucks' top draft choice. He had played his way from being back up to Jay Schrader to the starter. So, we would be rooting for Washington because they had a black quarterback. Now, Denver started out with a 10-0 lead. And then came the second quarter, where, as my mama would say, William showed his ass. He basically showed out. A second quarter to remember unless you're a Denver fan, was score after score after score orchestrated by Doug Williams. He threw for four touchdowns, four scores in one quarter. And it just seemed like Denver was just going bam, 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 bam. Knock back, knock back, knock back, knock out. Which was kind of ironic because Williams had hyperextended his knee in the first quarter. Many people wondered, would he be able to come back? He did, and brother, did he come back. Four scores. 
four touchdown passes to four different receivers. Oh, and there was a little matter of Timmy Smith running wild himself for a then Super Bowl record of yardage. Now, Doug Williams basically put the whole notion of could a black quarterback compete at the highest level and win? He put that question to rest and then some. 42-10 win by the Redskins was at the time the largest point margin scored by a winning team. Most points scored by a team in a most points scored in a quarter, a record that still stands, and a bevy of records for scoring, passing efficiency, you name it, Doug Williams had it. And the notion of a black man being a quarterback in the NFL, I think, was put to bed that day. That glorious Sunday in San Diego. Now going forward, there have been a number of other black quarterbacks who have made the Super Bowl. Donovan McNabb, Patrick Mahomes, Steve McNair, uh, Russell Wilson, just to name a few. But for the first time in the Super Bowl, there will be two black quarterbacks facing each other. I did find it ironic that two black quarterbacks faced one another in the Super Bowl almost a dozen years after two black coaches faced each other in the Super Bowl. But that's a, that's a discussion and final word for another day about black coaches in the NFL, which I've already discussed at length here a few times. In any, in any case, the black quarterback in the NFL is no longer a surprise. It's no longer a shock to see a black quarterback in the NFL. If my memory serves me correct, every one of the 32 teams in the NFL has had a black starting quarterback at one time or another. The fact that a black quarterback can play in the NFL is no longer a surprise. But the knock has always been can a black quarterback win a title? So far, only three have done it. Mahomes, uh, Russell Wilson, and of course, Doug Williams. There's going to be a... Mahomes may be the first black quarterback to win twice. Or Jalen Hurts could add his name to the very small roster of black quarterbacks who have won in the Super Bowl. Is this a trend? Is this something that we will see more often? I think so. The black quarterback is not an anomaly anymore. The black quarterback is just as frequent as any other quarterback in the NFL. The fact that two black quarterbacks facing off one another isn't the top billing of the Super Bowl, the matchup of the Kelsey brothers from University of Cincinnati, are basically what everyone's talking about. I think the fact that no one is talking about their two black quarterbacks facing off is a good thing because it has shown that the black quarterback in the NFL and in the Super Bowl is becoming a normalized thing. Now, if we could only talk about having more coaches of color facing off in the Super Bowl being a normal thing, then this scribe in the Hoodwood would be happy. And that is the final word from the Wood.
Now, with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time in the Hoodwood is just about done for this week, and I thank you so much again for your visit. Now, the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. Please send me emails regarding show topics, questions, comments on the show, both praise and criticism. I welcome your correspondence, and I try to get back to you as quickly as I can. Now, the show's website is sportsfromthehoodwood.com, which has a back catalog of the show dating back 10 years, both audio and video form. You can check out the Sports from the Hoodwood page on Facebook which has the video podcast simulcast, as well as other topics, funny stuff, lots of heated discussions, and a lot more. The video versions, of course, are on YouTube. Hit the subscribe, subscribe button, smash that like button for more great content. Now, the link to this podcast is also on the Twitter feed, which is at Hoodwood Sports. And there's a lot, a lot of interesting stuff, interesting stuff that I post. Tweet me, and I will tweet you back via that Hoodwood Sports Twitter link. We do tweet back and we do tweet back often. The audio version is on Spotify, Amazon, iMusic, Stitcher, and many other fine podcast platforms and providers. If Hoodwood is not on your favorite, drop me a line and I will do what I can to get it posted on that uh, podcast provider. Special thanks as always to Rage Pictures for providing production assistance to the show. That's it from the Hoodwood, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time from the Hoodwood, fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 audio and films production.